Leah Sharabu, Alice Nagata, Sumi, Hamid Ashuri, Arzu, Brian Holcomb, Jacques Hamel, Martin Burnham, Godina Tumza, Wang Zimmen, Cassie Burnham. Two in five persecuted in Asia, one in five in Africa, one in seven worldwide, 6,175 detained, 5,110 churches attacked, 5,898 Christians murdered last year. Many have lost children, spouses, some kidnapped, made slaves, forcibly married and abused. There is an evil rising. It's escalating that hates Christians and then begin with a media report. It began with one brother killing his brother in a field. It's echoed in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The ridicule at work, the policy that threatens your job because it doesn't fall in alignment with your faith, the neighbor who doesn't want your kids to play with their kids because they might become converted, the name calling, the jeered, the veiled insults. Evil is escalating. And don't think you're immune to its results. It may take many forms, different degrees, but it's there. Where is God in all of this? He is there, even if his name is not so much as whispered. And what should we do? Because this is the reality we all face day in and day out. But that question remains, what should we do? I think there is an answer in this passage in Esther that we're going to look at. But we need to reframe the question. When evil escalates, instead of asking, where is God? Instead ask, what is the God-honoring response? What is the God-honoring response? So let's open up to Esther chapter 2. We're going to continue, we're going to, for context, we're going to read from verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins, verse 19, gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther had obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, the two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So two, two weeks ago, we looked with Pastor Ian 
at the dark and depraved conditions that were happening in the capital of Persia, Persian Empire. We left this wedding celebration, but we're introduced to this second gathering of the virgins. We're not told why, other than it's just a, a time marker, because something significant is about to happen. And we're kind of pointed to this command that Mordecai has for Esther, something that's going to impact the story going forward. And we learned something about Esther here. We learned that she was continually obedient to Mordecai as a child should be to their parents. We also see that she was told to keep her identity hidden from Mordecai. I wonder what effect that had on her, being told to hide your identity. Now, there are times when it is wise to hide your identity. And we're not told by the author if this is wise or foolish, what Mordecai tells Esther. But even when it's wise to conceal our identity, we got to be careful that in doing so, we don't be, become these hidden, closeted Christians who compromise on most important matters. Now, we don't need to respond to everything that happens. But on the other side, sometimes we do need to respond to the things that are happening. There are ways to assimilate within our culture and ways we must stand out from our culture. But who we are, our identity, and our worship are non-negotiables. Now, we all face this tension of how Christian can I be? I know I face it. Like the screensaver at work with that kind of Bible quote that comes up, should I hide it? Or the Bible on my desk, should I keep it closed or open? Or when somebody asks me, what are you going to do on the weekend? Do I mention, yeah, I am going to church, I am, I am I'm going to worship? Or do I just kind of play it, play it down? It's interesting, often we don't require a command to stay hidden. We do that just naturally. Mordecai was a city official. And in some capacity, we don't know, he might have been a town clerk, he might have been parking enforcement, we don't know. But we do know he was stationed at the city gate. And he was privy to the discussion of these two people, Big Fan and Teresh. So he informs the queen, and she in turn informs the king who discovers and thwarts this assassination attempt. The eunuchs are hung, and the incident is logged. But there's no accolades, there's no recognition. But how does Mordecai respond to this? He just continues to be faithful. And we're at this point in the story where we have this Jewish woman who becomes queen and we think things are going well. The covenant people of God are put in a position that seems rather favorable. But what every narrative needs is an initiating event. And that initiating event leads to a problem. And this problem is going to change the landscape of this whole story going here. Let's read verse 1 and 2. And after these things of chapter 3, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his, throne, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Let's pause there. We're introduced to Haman who is being promoted to the king 
to something like a deputy prime minister or a vice president, the author of Esther wants us to know that this is a person of significance. That's why it's just not simply Haman, it's Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha. It's a signal of this heritage and that this person comes with baggage. And if the name Agag sounds familiar, it's supposed to because it's supposed to draw us back to King Agag. Haman is maybe a descendant of Agag of the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, God orders King Saul to annihilate, to wipe out the Amalekites. But King Saul fails in doing so and in so loses the throne. The Amalekites are ancient enemies of God's covenant people. God orders to completely obliterate them. But that comes from the Amalekites' desire to do that first to Israel. When Israel comes out of Egypt, they're tired, they're exhausted, they've just left from the Red Sea, and now they're going, and the Amalekites meet them on the way with a desire to destroy them, women, children, everyone, everything. But you think the story stops there. The Amalekites didn't stop. In Judges 6, they continue and try it again. As Pastor Ian mentioned two weeks ago, Mordecai was in the line of Benjamin. And because it's also mentioned Kish, who was the father of King Saul, there's a close relation. This is not an accidental mention. This is an intentional showing of this ancient struggle that goes, between, that goes beyond Haman and Mordecai, King Agag and King Saul, Amalek and Israel, but it goes beyond that, all the way to Esau and being an antagonist to the sons of Jacob. This is biblical theology on display, where we see the seed of the serpent from Cain all the way to Esau trying to destroy the covenant people of God, the seed of the woman, again and again. This is an ancient hatred birthed out of, from the serpent, Satan himself. What we're witnessing here is spiritual warfare. What we're living is spiritual warfare as well, where we're constantly under attack by Satan. It is the people of God versus the enemy of God. Now imagine this. There's someone who hates you and your family. They happen to work with you too. And then they get promoted over you but they're not just promoted, now they're put in the second position. And not only that, you're asked, every time they come into the office, you need to salute them. How would you do with that? For me, I'd probably kiss my teeth. I'd, I'd try and fair, I'd probably roll my eyes. And did I mention they hate you? What does Mordecai do? But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told him in an order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. 
Mordecai is asked to bow down to a people God has designated as an enemy because of their unmitigated hatred and their desire for destruction. How could Mordecai bow down and still be a faithful Jew? This is not about bowing down to a foreign ruler because God's people have bowed down to other foreign rulers as an act of submission to God. We think of Daniel who who bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar. We think of Nehemiah. We think of even the sons of Jacob to Pharaoh. So this is not the issue. When confronted with the choice to obey kings and to align with the God's declaration of war against a tireless enemy, what would you do? What should be your response? What is the God-honoring response? Stand firm. Stand firm first by being guided by your convictions. Mordecai is faithful even in the the midst of a lack of recognition. And now stays faithful even when viewed in a poor light. The other officials were pressuring him day by day to bow to Haman. But Mordecai stuck strong in his convictions. Even when Haman told him that there would likely, even when there would likely be repercussions, he still stands firm. Conscience, John Calvin says, does not allow a man to suppress within himself what he knows, but it pursues him to the point of convicting him. Our convictions must be based on what we know to be true, and they cannot easily be ignored. Or put another way by someone else. We know these things to be so true that we're willing to live for them and necessarily die for them. At the center of true leadership, you will find convictions that drive and determine everything else. What are your convictions? If someone came up to you today, could you articulate them? Are they centered around Christ and the gospel? Do they influence even your decision-making? Are they even grounded in the word of God? Stand firm second by being grounded in the word of God. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, this wasn't based on a group of people having the same convictions or a celebrity leader espousing a particular view. Mordecai's conviction was backstopped and his ability to stand firm was strengthened by God's word. How could Mordecai bow to Haman and pay homage to him with such words like this in Deuteronomy? I'm going to put the verse on the screen. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you, as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God had, has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. For Mordecai to bow to a mortal enemy, a mortal and an enemy of God, would have been outrageous. He was able to stand firm because his convictions were in alignment with God's word. But also, they were governed by God's authority. Mordecai also knew God was very active and present in the affairs of this world. God was the ultimate authority, and God would not allow the enemy to have a victory over the covenant people of God, because that would thwart God's purposes. The seed of the serpent will never triumph over the seed of the woman. 
This is not about Mordecai being ethnically a Jew. This is about Mordecai being a Jew by faith. A faith in God who upholds his covenantal promises. There were other Jews in Susa, because you have to think about this. There were, there were Jews in Susa beyond Mordecai and Esther who had no problem with this. They had no problem with bowing down to Haman. But we see Mordecai holding fast to knowing who God is. And this would have been infuriating to Haman. Because Mordecai wasn't just a Jew in name, but in practice and belief. He knew Yahweh was sovereign and governed by this truth. He could stand firm in his opposition to and his response to the officials and not bow to Haman. Even so, Mordecai is not belligerent or bombastic. He's not offensive in his tone, even though he was offensive in his practice. A God-honoring response is standing firm. So let me be clear with this. Social media is not the right response when you are attacked. Let me, let me throw another one. Yelling at someone is not the right response. Let me put another one. Apathy and indifference is also not the right response. The Lord's servant, thinking about 2 Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do so. What's Haman's response to all of this? Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone so that they had made known to him the people of God, people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So look at the parallels between Ahasuerus and Mordecai. King Ahasuerus, when one queen rebels, he thinks all the women in every household will disobey their husbands. Now Haman sees one Jew who disobeys him, so now his thought is, I need to kill all the Jews. And let me, let me put this in context in 127 provinces, from Ethiopia to India. He's not just saying about wiping out Mordecai, he's talking about wiping out the whole people in the whole known world. If that seems insane, it is. It's like being cut off in a Walmart parking lot and instead of getting angry at the driver, waiting at the door and yelling at everyone who gets out of every car in the entire parking lot. That's how insane that is. It's like saying, every husband is lazy because yours is. Or it's like saying, every wife is a complainer because yours is. It's like saying, all police are racist because 100 are. It's like saying, I'll never commit to a church because I was hurt in one. Do you see how crazy this is? 
We all make these wide sweeping, dangerous generalizations. And we do it over and over again. We do it on Facebook, Twitter, choose, choose the platform, or we do it through idle conversation that leads to outright slander. Because our anger is unbridled and unchecked, a slight or a feel fuels what we want to call righteous anger, which we're more ready to share than we are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your fury is not righteous. Your anger is not godly. Haman is in the same mold as Ahasuerus, one who is weak, insecure, and unlike the king, Haman is someone with a murderous hatred. Are you like him? We may have a God-honoring response to evil, but we need to be prepared for anything that comes next. So we need to ask another question. And the question is this, what should I do if there is reprisal? What should I do if there is pushback, if there is vengeance, if there is a response? What should I do if there is reprisal? So we're tracking together. This, uh, this is happening in the fifth year of, since Esther has become queen and nine years since chapter one. Haman is waiting and casting lots. Let's look at verse seven together. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Hazawaris, they cast Pur. That is, they cast lots. Before Haman, day after day, they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Ador. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and, and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. So just for context, casting lots is a way of divining timing and decisions, and it was used using the ancient East. Haman is looking for the right time, the right day, the right month to enact his plan to exterminate the Jews. Ultimately, he landed on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. But all his plans hinge on the approval of the king. Have you ever played this game, Two, Two Truths and a Lie? You know, you, it's where you make two true statements and there's one false one. And the, the point of the game is that you really get to see how well somebody knows you. Haman is about to play this game with King Ahasuerus. To test how much does King Ahasuerus actually know his people and more so, how much does he know Haman himself? First, he lays the landscape of this game. And the landscape is, he doesn't give, them, he doesn't give King Ahasuerus a, a fighting chance because he doesn't reveal who he's talking about. So there's no descriptors other than these are people that are dispersed and scattered abroad. 
doesn't tell, there's no identifying markers. So his first charge is this. Their laws are different than every other people. This is true. The old covenant people of God were to be distinct and not like the nations around them or the ones they dwell among. And we don't know which laws Haman is referring to, but we know they were marked for being different. This is how the new covenant of people of God are called to be. We're called to be distinct. We're called to be exiles. We're called to be sojourners. We are to distinguish ourselves as believers by our devotion to Christ, our strange avoidance of sin, and our display of a citizenship that is otherworldly as we live as exiles in this world. Some of you don't know this about me, um, and I kind of hide it. I used to, I used to participate. I used to be... Um, I used to participate in spoken word um, or slam poetry. Um, and a while, a while back, I was participating in this writer's festival in Windsor. And it's a, composed of other artists. We're, we're performing from a, um, some authors um, and some other poets. And we're performing, and some were, were performing this stuff that was like either ultra-sexualized or just anti-establishment. So I'm here different, right? I'm, I, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Because I have this poem, it's one of my favorite poems I used to perform, called Commerce of Amnesia. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those crazy kind of hippie titles. So I, I performed this, and it's, it's really about how, the, how materialism distracts you and makes you forget the things of God. So people who are not even Christians are saying amen, they're clapping, because that's what you do at a poetry slam. So I'm feeling pretty high on myself that day. I'm going, I'm amazing. Later that evening, I was coaxed to going to a party with some friends and dancing provocatively with some people. And about after the second hour, I found how I forgot how wonderful my poetry was. Fast forward to the next morning. I'm walking to campus and I'm, I met with one of the other poets. And, I, and we start talking, and I think he's going to compliment me on my fantastic dancing. I think he's going to, that's what I think he's going to do. So I'm getting ready to de- handle the, the, the compliments. I'm getting, I'm getting all geeked going, okay, here it comes, here it comes. And, but this is what came. He says, but I thought you were a Christian. It dropped like a bomb. I remember to this day because I realized I wasn't acting as an exile. Some of us don't need to wear camouflage gear to blend in. Because we are like those in the wild, not governed by the word of God. Here's the second charge by Haman. And they don't keep the king's law. The truth is that a faithful Jew, not simply by their nationality, but recognized by the submission to authority as authority that was given by God, as so long as God's laws were not violated. In this charge, Haman is simply lying. But let's go to the third charge. It is not the king's prophet to tolerate them. Now, this is another blatant lie, because considering how Mordecai the Jew had just thwarted an assassination plot, in essence, the king benefited simply by being alive. Because otherwise, if Mordecai hadn't stepped in, the king would be dead. not to mention all the tax revenue he, he incurred from the Jewish population. 
which must have been a lot because every activity we find King Ahaz's King, King Ahaz doing, that is a tough name to say. And I don't know how Pastor Ian does it week in and week out. But he seemed, that, that king seems more, more engaged with throwing parties than anything else. Because we find him at feast after feast after feast. So as we look at, at, look at this game, we kind of realize this is more like two lies and a truth. And Haman quickly gets to the point, the destruction of the Jews while still obscuring their identity. And Haman, Haman sweetens the pot by offering 10,000 talents of silver, which is about 750,000 pounds of silver, or about 60%, some say, of the annual tax revenue of the Persian Empire. If I'm taking that, I'm, I might be blind to what, I'm, what I should be aware of. Most scholars think that Haman wasn't just independently wealthy, but this is what he was going to get from plundering the Jews. This last statement in verse 11 can be a bit confusing upon first reading. Like, why, is the, why, why was offered all that money? Is, king, is Haman going to retain it? Why is the king giving it back? It's most likely that this was a Persian politeness or understood as a meaning that the source of money was going to come from the Jews. But one thing is crystal clear. Haman had the authority of the king, as signified by that signet ring, to live up to the title that he's now given, enemy of the Jews. Notice his full identity and his new status as an enemy are given, and it's given and linked to being an Agagite. So the author, God, is taking us all the way back to say this revived and empowered enemy of the Jews with an insatiable desire to destroy the covenant people of God is on the prowl. But we still haven't addressed that question. What do we do if there's no, with there, when there is reprisal? We haven't addressed that. The answer is stay consistent. Where is Mordecai in all of this? You notice in that it's from 7 to 12, we haven't even heard of him so much? Most likely answer, Mordecai is where he was when the officials confronted him, when he refused to bow down to Haman. He's where he was when he discovered the assassination plot. He's at the king's gate doing the king's business. Same bad time, same bad channel. He is staying consistent. When hate is directed at you, stay consistent. Continue being faithful under pressure, scrutiny, and isolation. Be consistent in living for the Lord in your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, your home. Because it's an act of holy worship to the God who saved you and the God who calls you his own. Someone I know was, was asked um, by a colleague about a current event. And he answered, as anybody would, but he was accused of being homophobic. He was transferred out of his position, treated by some poorly, and others just quietly stopped talking to him. One thing he maintained, though, was his integrity. And he stayed consistent in how he conducted himself. Even when he knew the accusations weren't true. Over time, others came to him 
as they saw his diligence in the new position and his strength of character, and they held him as blameless. And when they came to him, they recognized that what was said about him was an outright lie. His integrity held true in the midst of false allegations because he stayed consistent, remaining faithful to the Lord in all he did, trusting the Lord even when he didn't know how things would turn out. When the pressure builds and trouble looms, we need to be consistent with our actions and words. We need to consistently mirror Christ to those who are watching, even those who are attacking us. Look at the example of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Even after staying consistent after reprisal, we need to consider the last question. What can I do when there is, when there seems like there is no rescue? Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the 13th month, on the first month. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king, to the king's satraps, to the governors. Before I go on, if you have a pencil or a highlighter or a pen and you'd like to mark up your Bible, please do so. Think of, I want you to, hi, I want you to highlight, mark any of the alls or the everys, because there's going to be a lot. Haman commanded, Haman all, to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king, Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. The letters to the couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to, the, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. See how far-reaching and comprehensive this edict was? It was given to three ranks of government. The satraps who ran about 20 subdivisions of the, the whole empire, and then from there to the governors, who are responsible for smaller subdivisions, and then to the officials or the nobles who are like local chiefs. It's similar to like the mobilized COVID response. You have it from the prime minister to the members of parliament to the premiers to the MPPs to mayors to city councilors. We have this edict to murder the covenant people of God will reach every region and every person, but it wouldn't stop there. The law was written in each person's written language and in their oral language. So there would be no excuses in understanding. In like, it's like in other countries where there is a written language like German or English, but there's a spoken dialect, like Swiss German in Switzerland or Patois in Jamaica. The law wasn't just for people who could read, because if you look at verse 14, the proclamation of the law was read out to all the people, so there was no excuse not to obey and no escape for the Jews. Haman's plan was comprehensive in its reach, comprehensive in its local coverage, comprehensive in its destruction, comprehensive in its communication. 
demonstrating Haman's comprehensive hatred of all the Jews. In almost a whole year, the Persian Empire were to kill, destroy, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. We have the tale of two atmospheres, the king and Haman sitting down to drink. We have indifference and satisfaction. On the other side, we have the people of Susa who are in panicked confusion. Imagine being around the Jews at the time. Your friends and co-workers are now marked for death. Should you continue to associate with them? And if you do, are you going to be lumped together with them? Now the Jews faithful to the kingdom who decide to stay in Susa and Persian cities instead of returning to Jerusalem with Ezra are now wondering what horrors the next 12 months are going to bring. They were boxed in. They were cornered. So what can you do when there seems like there's no escape? First, stay trusting. Two quotes from John Piper kind of helped me through this. They'll be on the screen. The terrors and setbacks of persecution are no hindrance to the coming triumph. And here's one of my favorites. And God's way to magnify the patience of grace through the persistence of sin. We have not yet seen the climax of God's saving achievement. Even as evil plans seem to be at work, God is working out to bring about his grand purpose. Do we honestly think God is unaware or of our suffering or doesn't care or is incapable? We need to confront that lie with truth. Think about the, think about the Israelites leaving Egypt. Chapter 1 of Exodus, at the very bottom, we see that God saw, he heard, he knew, he remembered. But he didn't just plan to, he didn't plan to abandon them, he planned to deliver them to himself. I know stay, to ask you to stay trusting is a hard thing, but if you are too weak to even do that, look to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look to the church who can remind you of God's faithfulness, encourage you, and pray for you. Now, some of you, you're probably wondering, why do I need the church when I have a close-knit family? I got some neighbors who really rally with me. I have um, coworkers who are there for me. Just ask yourself these two questions. Does the king of kings bend his ear to them or to the church? Is your support system one that extends to a God who goes beyond time and death? Or is it only extended for us a short time and a short period? Trusting doesn't mean that we don't feel pain, grief, or disappointment. But it does mean we don't wallow in it, as God has a purpose even in this suffering we don't need to panic like the people of Susa, but we can weep without despairing, knowing that God is sovereign over this moment and the next. How does the persecuted church continue in the midst of imprisonments, beatings, rape, torture, being disowned by family and disavowed by friends? By trusting the God who saved them, who is saving them, and will save them. Stay trusting because we have not yet seen the climax of God's saving achievement. 
Some of you have come here today and don't even know Christ. This stuff that I'm talking to you seems like foolishness. It seems impossible. So instead of stay trusting, I'm going to ask you to start trusting. Because evil is escalating in its, in its wake, then ancient enemy is destroying lives. The suffering you see around you can be explained by cynicism and its effects. The pollution in the air, the water, the pollution in every human heart. In order for suffering to end, sin needs to end. And sin needs to be dealt with and must be punished in order for there to be justice. But here's the first problem. You have sin in you and at worst you participate in it actively. You need rescue. But the second problem is complicated because you cannot rescue yourself. And your friends, no no matter how well-meaning they are, your family can't. The government, not even with increased spending, and your own wealth can't help you either. A missionary once told me this story, and I, and I share it often, so if I've shared it before, please forgive me. So the, the government of a village is going to build this highway. And so they alert all these, all these um, houses, all these homeowners, that the highway is going to be built and they need to leave. Some get the notice and leave. Some don't. Months pass, nothing happens. So a government official shows up on the street with his houses and starts painting red X's on each door. Some still leave, but very few. Most of them stay. And some decide, you know what? I'm going to pretend it's not even there. I'm going to decorate it with house, house plants outside. I'm going to paint over the door. Some just say, hey, this is the new fashion. Everybody's got a red X on their door. A few weeks later, nothing happens until they hear the rumbling of thunder. It's a bulldozer. And after that, you hear the screams of people trying to get out as much things they can carry in their arms as houses are toppled and toppled and toppled. We can hide, pretend, or run knowing that we are marked for judgment by our sin, but that still won't rescue us. Our sins are so inescapable that only God could rescue us. And he did. By becoming a man and substituting himself for us, bearing the judgment that belonged to us, and thereby rescuing those who believe. He died and rose again so that all who need need rescue can come to him. His name is Jesus. It begins by starting to trust him as the only one who can rescue you from what you deserve. We have an enemy who hates us, church. But we have a friend in Jesus who loves us to the point of death. We have an adversary who prowls like a roaring lion. But we have a king who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We have a killer who's seeking our lives, but we have a God who brings the dead to life. We are the new covenant people of God, even in the midst of a rising tide of evil and hate. But God is already there planning of the celebration. Even though the battle may take a toll, the victory is assured. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray.